0: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Evan Sisley has had a broad-ranging career that includes photojournalism, where he covered national politics and service as a Navy corpsman, working as a paramedic on ambulances in Kentucky, Maine, and Texas. We know him because he was senior aide and medic to my dad, President George H.W. Bush, from 2015 to 2018, in the final years of his life. Evan was instrumental in caring for dad with dignity and love, and he's responsible for Sully, the service dog that stayed by my dad's side after the death of my mother. Evan finally had time to go back to school to work on his prerequisite courses for medical school at Georgetown University, which is where he is currently. Welcome to Health Gig, Evan. Thanks for having me. I miss you. Honestly, we all miss you, but they were wonderful days when you were here and dad was still alive. But anyway, it's good to see you now. I was just hoping that you would start by telling us a little bit about you and where you grew up and where you went to school and a little bit about your family.
1: Well, I grew up outside Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. My stepdad was a journalist, worked for CNN for a very long time. He's actually now an editor with 60 Minutes. We grew up in Fairfax County, went to high school out there, first at Paul the Six, then graduated from Chantilly, one of four boys, and just had kind of a normal middle-class upbringing.
0: Yeah, nice Catholic schools. Tricia, who's <laughs> not on the podcast today, but we sent all of our boys to Catholic schools and probably played baseball against St. Paul.
1: Didn't your boys go to Gonzaga? Is yeah, that correct.
0: Yeah, yeah. I used exactly. to. I played
1: football against Gonzaga, and so it's possible. I think uh, Sam and I are roughly <laughs> roughly the same age bracket
0: so you started out as a photojournalist and I've seen some of your photos you've taken some pictures that I've experienced but how did that begin and where did that take you I know you covered kind of a major world event so tell us about that
1: my stepdad my father who raised me since he was working at CNN growing up I grew up around a lot of journalism and when I first had some interest in photography the natural thing to cover was to go into D.C. and cover protests. So I started mostly by photographing protests in the early 2000s and then ended up interning for a photojournalism company called SEPA Press, which is a French agency. They ended up putting me in a position where I was able to cover the White House and Congress in 2005. So I kind of just gradually worked towards that. And then when I was in college, it was almost like being drafted to the big leagues. I was hired by Time Magazine to cover the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007. And After doing three days there, I just ended up walking into a bar, putting my cameras down and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life because that specific incident was really, really difficult. It didn't feel right. I grew up in this area. A lot of friends of mine were at Virginia Tech at the time of the shooting, and I just had a very hard time with covering national tragedies of that nature. I have the utmost respect for people in journalism who go about doing that. It's a very, very difficult job. But for me, my heart just wasn't in that. So I ended up looking for different ways where I'd be able to help people other than photojournalism. So I was originally thinking, well, healthcare sounds like a good idea. So I ended up switching and taking an EMT course at Western Kentucky University where I was at because I wasn't so sure. I was a photography student thinking I was going to do nursing. That's a pretty big change and wasn't even sure if I could handle the grit involved with healthcare. So took an EMT course, worked on an ambulance. And then after about six months of that, I had seen enough drama on an ambulance where I knew I could do this job. And I decided I wanted to join the Navy as a Navy corpsman with the Marine Corps specifically. I wanted to go serve with the Marines.
0: Where did you serve as a Navy corpsman?
1: I joined the reserves and then I used that as a way to pick and choose You can spend your time in the reserve staying stateside with the reserve unit, or you can volunteer for deployments. And then roughly 2009 to 2013, there was a lot of deployments to jump on. So I ended up doing about three years continuous of active duty service by first volunteering to go to Afghanistan and then volunteering to go to Eastern Europe and Israel.
0: What was it like when you went to Afghanistan?
1: There's the kind of the obvious Trauma associated with a lot of things that you end up doing over there. But when you're in the military, that's the big game. That's what you train for. You spend so many months training to go into combat. As a medic, with my primary responsibility being the healthcare and safety of others, having the opportunity to go serve on the front line with a Marine Infantry Unit in 2010 was a great opportunity. And you see plenty of things that are very difficult the injuries and death of those you're serving with, as well as the injuries and deaths of those who are local to the area, as well as enemy combatants. So my treatment exposure over there kind of ran the gamut from people who I served alongside who were injured to I remember a guy who was trying to plant an IUD and it blew up on him. Or the local population. We had everything from, you know, small children who were injured, a little girl a large pot of boiling water in a kitchen fell on top of her. Normal everyday, almost EMS sort of stuff would come to us, ran the whole gamut. There was one man who was blind for 40 years and he came to a American military base because of his understanding of Western medicine is that we would be able to save him and to cure his blindness. I saw polio over there, you see things that you would never see in the United States.
0: Talk about on the job training.
1: In many ways too, it's kind of the wild west of medicine. You do as much as you possibly can with as little resources as you have. There are plenty of times where you're just kind of doing the best you can out there. It's not really the same as when you have the abundance of opportunities and of supplies that we have in the United States.
0: So when you're in the reserves, do you have to serve a certain period of time or can you choose?
1: I was contracted for an eight year period. I did my full service into when I was working for your father. I actually left the reserves completely in 2017.
0: Oh, so I didn't realize you were still in the reserves. So you got back from Afghanistan. So tell us, how did you end up with dad?
1: When I volunteered to go to Afghanistan, the unit that was being deployed was the Texas Marines out of Houston, 1st Battalion, 23rd Marines. I was with Alpha Company which was the specific company that was based out of Ellington Field in Houston. When I came back to the United States, I had an opportunity to go do trauma surgery research at UT Health Systems in Houston. I took that job, came to Houston, was placed with the same unit that I had deployed with. And I had no idea at the time, but that unit, there were several corpsmen, there were several medics who were there who had been working on a small detail on their own. We weren't getting paid by the reserves, but the reserves is who Tyson Vocal, who works for Texas A&M, reached out to some of the corpsmen in 123 and was able to find a group who had interest in a side job providing medical care for your father.
0: So you raised your hand, said yes. Mm -hmm. So then what happened?
1: And everybody wanted to do it. Anybody (laughs) who had the opportunity, I mean, who wouldn't want to? That's what an amazing opportunity. We started providing 24-7 coverage. It was a very small group of us for your dad providing medical care and just normal day-to-day from pushing a wheelchair that your father was in because of his Parkinson's disease to just day-to-day tasks, as well as emergency medical assessment and decision for transport.
0: How did you become the number one guy?
1: We had a small group. A lot of the guys also had wives and children at home and I didn't. And I got along with your mom, which was one of the (laughs) probably the biggest deciding factors.
0: She was formidable, but wonderful, but she was tough.
1: She was your dad's primary caregiver her entire life. And I think when she started having these young men in the house who were helping provide medical care for your dad, I think that was a difficult thing at first of kind of accepting that. And she did. She did it very graciously. Both your grandparents aged with grace. Her and I got along really well and she realized I was kind of a no-nonsense individual when it came to making decisions on medical care, and I think that actually really helped. Your parents and I got along, I think, the most because I didn't necessarily always tell them what they wanted to hear, but I told them what they needed to hear at the Mm -hmm. time. and I think there was a lot of respect for that, especially when you're a former president, former first lady. It can be difficult for people to give you the tough news.
0: Dad was reluctant to have help at all at the beginning. So how did you gain his trust? Obviously, you are no nonsense and you are good at telling people what they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear, but it must have been intimidating in a way. Dad was the sweetest thing in the world, but still, he was a former president. What were some of your strategies to get both mom and dad to trust you?
1: Your father was incredibly intimidating. (laughs) Not just a little bit, but incredibly. I mean, not just former president, but also former director of central intelligence and so many other, his career in public service was unbelievable. I think it was a combination of having worked on ambulances and also having had the opportunity to work in journalism covering national politics that I had been around so many, including actually covering your brother's administration. I think some of the initial awe of all that had become a little bit more I still have an immense respect for the commander-in-chief and for the office of the president, but spending time around that helped to realize that these are normal human beings at the end of the day, put in extraordinary situations and having the right level of respect for the office, but also treating them like normal human beings is very, very important. And with your father, I think always coming at it with a level of respect, but trying to provide the information as if you would want it provided to you, was really the best strategy. And also always remembering that your father, at the end of the day, had the final say. Nobody was there to tell George H.W. Bush what to do. We were always there to advise on his medical treatment for him. And he was always capable of making his own decisions. And the same thing goes for your mother.
0: Well, what about when dad wanted an extra martini and (laughs) mom would say, no, how would you intervene in that situation?
1: Oh, wow. That's, uh, (laughs) (laughs) those were tough. I think your father generally got his way. It was more of allowing them to, to have those difficult negotiations. I was not as much of a skilled negotiator as your father was.
0: (laughs) We had to stay out of the way of the wrath of mom. But working with people at the end of their life really is a skill. And I think people who listen to our podcast, many of them are going through aging parents. And what does it require to sort of walk someone home, if you know what I mean? Mm. And what are some tips that you might have for that? You did it so beautifully.
1: The biggest ones are respect and empathy. If you can always realize that this is their life, even though it's at the end of their life. It's their life and they need to be able to make those decisions, especially if they're completely cognizant and oriented and are able to make those decisions on their own. And your father really was, and so was your mom, always making sure that they felt that their voices were heard and that their wishes were being respected. And that's just part of having empathy in healthcare more than anything and trying not to be a bull in a china shop when it comes to dealing with the end of somebody's life. It takes a gentle hand.
0: Yeah. And dad had Parkinson's. You mentioned it. He had a specific kind of Parkinson's where it affected his lower extremities, where in the end he couldn't walk at all. And how did you manage his care given that particular diagnosis?
1: Your parents did a beautiful job of making their diagnoses public. They did this on their own. So, even having this conversation, I feel comfortable with it based off of the fact that they had put out statements, both your mother and your father. But your father had a form of vascular Parkinson's and it was slowly degenerative over time. He started off with a cane. When I first came to him, he had a walker. And then that transitioned into a wheelchair. And then by the end of his life, he was pretty solidly only capable of staying in that wheelchair. Your father did everything with such grace. And his will to live and his love for life was so huge. And even though I can only imagine how difficult it would be to be the most powerful person in the world to then having to be in a wheelchair and have somebody push you where you want to go, Giving up that level of control has to be just unbelievably difficult. Your father just did it with such amazing grace, truly, and was never difficult about it. He never really got frustrated too much with us, even though I was literally a third of his age. I can only imagine how difficult that would be to give up so much of your control to a guy who knows nothing about life in comparison to a person like him.
0: Well, it was kind of ironic because dad signed the. Americans with Disabilities Act that he would end up in a wheelchair, but he was never ashamed about it and never ashamed of going out in public in the chair. And I think that was a wonderful example for people who are disabled in life and to try to make the most of life when they can, but you helped him do that, which was a gift to them. What did you learn from working with mom and dad?
1: Oh, so much. Even just right there, kind of going off of what you were just saying about the Americans with Disabilities Act, your dad never wanted to make anything about him. It was always about the other guy. It was always about helping somebody who was in need. It was always about lifting somebody up in their worst moment of their life. And he didn't even realize, I think so many times, how much he was an example for people who are elderly and who are at the end of their life and about what they can do, that it's not about just staying at home because you're embarrassed that you've lost your own mobility. He was out there with a neck collar on after having a vertebral fracture. He was out there with a C collar on throwing a first pitch of an Astros game. He just wouldn't ever allow anything to stop it. And that was such an amazing, poignant example for people who are at the end of their life to not allow yourself to retreat back into the confines of your own home, but go forward. Go live your life. Do as much as you possibly can to the fullest. And he really did that. That was definitely something I learned about living life with grace, about always looking after the other guy. I come from a generation that doesn't handwrite. You know, I send emails and text messages that are about one line each. And he taught me to buy some stationery and some people notes. He was a prolific writer and having to learn from him, he would dictate his letters to me and I would write them out. But he taught me the importance of the personal touch of going out there and reaching out to your friends when they're having a rough time and let them know that you care, that you love them, to keep family first. He was always surrounded by family all the time. Even you know, his last day on earth, he was surrounded by an adoring family. The importance of family was such a profound example and the importance of public service. Absolutely. This is a man who lived every aspect of his life for the entirety of his life from when he was 18 years old on out was about public service and how to help others who didn't have as much as he did. That was a really amazing, amazing example through his life. And to see him still doing fundraising, even in the last several years of his life for Hurricane Harvey. He never stopped. The man never stopped. (laughs) It was unbelievable.
0: He was amazing. So dad was so much fun. He was the most wonderful father anybody could ask for, honestly. And he was creative and always, he was kind of an ideas man, always thinking of what would be fun to do and what could we do. And your job was more than medical care. What else did your job entail? What were some of the things that dad dreamed up that you helped out with?
1: Maine was always kind of where I think everybody had the most fun. We did half the year in Houston, half the year in Maine. The President Bush equivalent of having to have the conversation with your aging parents about taking their keys away from their ability to drive. For him, the equivalent was really about his boat, his 39-foot speedboat with 900 horsepower engines off the back of it, Which uh, he adored. three 300s. He loved it. It was his life out there. And his entire life, he was boating on the main coast. And he had gotten to a point where his vision wasn't as great as it used to be, where his balance wasn't as great as it used to be. And there was definitely some concern about him hurting himself on the boat. And so going out there and learning to drive his boat with him was probably one of the most fun experiences I've ever had in my life. And I know for him, that took a lot of grace to <laughs> allow this young Navy man next to him to drive his boat. But he taught me himself, and that was such a wonderful experience.
0: And yet you enabled him to still be able to go out in the boat. We couldn't drive it, but it was such a gift that he could still be in it for a period of time in the end dad and mom both had great senses of humor and saw the funny things in life. So what were some of the funny moments? Can you think of any working with mom and dad?
1: I think with them, some of the funnier interactions I saw was the needling each other. Mm -hmm. at times, (laughs) And they were really good at just kind of playing with each other all the time. I think one of the biggest things I learned from your parents was how to be a spouse. And I was not married when I came into the job, but I did end up getting married in the job. They set the tone for me as to how to be the primary protector for the other. Comfortable silence as well as like just them playing uh, and making fun of each other all the time and just having mm-hmm. fun. Yeah, uh, They had such a great sense of humor with each other.
0: Okay. All of a sudden, a story just popped into my mind. I don't know if you were there. Someone had given dad a fart machine and <laughs> mom was on her walker. Were you there? Do you remember the story I'm about to say? I
1: remember the fart machine, yeah.
0: Yeah, the fart machine. (laughs) And then mom was on her walker and dad was in his wheelchair. And he had the remote control in his hand and somehow it put the other half of the fart machine near mom and his mom was walking by, he was engaging it. And all of a sudden, you know, as if mom were making those noises walking by. And of course, we were on the floor laughing, but that was a typical kind of thing that they would do, which made life a lot of fun. what was, would you say was your hardest day
1: with dad? Your father had his disease progression was gradual over a lengthy period of time. Your mom's, on the other hand, was a little bit of a sharper decline. And I think the final weeks that your mom was alive were very hard. The day that both of them passed away, those aren't particularly difficult days because it's the end of so much suffering at the end of life. It's just the discomfort. It's, all of those things. And I would say that the weeks leading up for your mom was actually probably the more difficult times for me because it was so much of a realization and actualization that things weren't going to get better. And I I think those are tough. Those are tough days.
0: Yeah. Do you remember the story about when dad, after mom had died, dad saw mom?
1: That day in particular was just, it was a very interesting day. In EMS, I had been around you know, and pronounced people dead many times. But when your mom was passing away, your father was there by her bedside the entire day. There's no way to predict how long somebody has left on this earth that's between them and God. Almost every day he would go for a massage and he had gone upstairs to have a massage just for a brief moment to get kind of away from it. It was a very heavy, clearly a very heavy day. They'd been together for 74 years. Unbelievable amount of time. During the time he was having his massage, in about a three-block radius in their home in the River Oaks area, the entire neighborhood lost power. With the time I had been with your parents, I had never seen their house lose power. And nobody I knew could really remember a time that that happened. The Secret Service was able to carry your father down a flight of steps and get him back into the room as your mom was starting to decline. He was there to hold her hand when she passed away. And the moment that the physician who was there, Dr. Lenz, was listening to her heart stop is the moment the electricity was restored in the neighborhood. And it was one of, I've heard stories of people saying that these hard to explain moments occur at the moment of transition between life and death. And that was definitely made me question my thoughts on God and the afterlife and, and about having something that is bigger than all of us.
0: So, well, that story reminds me of after mom had died and I had gone home. So I wasn't there that day that you talked about. I'd gone home to bring my dress for the funeral because we did know she was dying. And I slept in the room that mom died in. And I remember trying on the dress and I remember thinking as I was trying the dress on, my thoughts were as I was walking around the corner to look in the full length mirror that mom, A, would have thought this dress was way too expensive because I bought it at Neiman Marcus. And secondly, that she would have not liked the open sleeves on the dress. And the minute those thoughts came into my mind, that full length mirror, which was firmly affixed to the back of the bathroom door, came crashing down. And so. Just like the power going out, this unexpected, mysterious thing happened to me as well. And so I agree with you that sometimes these mysterious things happen and point to something bigger and greater than ourselves.
1: Well, the biggest question is, did you wear the dress to the funeral?
0: No, I did not. Are you kidding? I immediately (laughs) took it back and I got the message, Mom take that dress back. So let's talk about Sully. Sully was a media sensation and he was a wonderful companion for dad after mom died and Sully was your idea. And so how did that come about?
1: I think it had a little bit to do with, again, with the ADA and setting the tone for those who have a disability and could use assistance and that i think with your father he always did really well when he had a mission when he had a cause something to look forward to and so i had gone to him with the idea that if he had had a service dog or adopted a service dog then it would end up bringing a lot of publicity to the issue and to the organization who provided the dog and showed in leading by example that it's okay to ask for help for veterans who have disabilities. On the side, I had also seen some wonderful studies about how having a service dog really helped people and gave them a purpose and added years onto people's lives. That was kind of part of my motivation there was to give him something to look forward to.
0: And the image of Sully next to dad's coffin will be remembered as one of the most poignant moments of the week of dad's funeral week. So where is Sully now? How's he doing?
1: Sully's good. He's, uh, <laughs> he actually just returned to work. He's been <laughs> at uh, Walter Reed since your father passed away. And he actually rode with the family on Air Force One to arrive in DC. And then he was taken to Walter Reed where he began working there as a facility dog, working with wounded warriors and their families at Walter Reed Medical Center. During COVID, unfortunately, he had to take a break He's currently living with a lovely family, Amy, who runs the kennel there at Walter Reed. There are several other dogs. Dylan is a wonderful service dog, and Luke, and they all live together. So he has two brothers now that he lives with, and um, (laughs) they're adorable. And I have a dog, Frida, and we all go on walks every once in a while out in the Great Falls area. We still get to see Sully and he's doing a lot of good things. A lot of what he does is he brings comfort to children. There are several kids who have to go in for infusions, whether it's an illness like cancer or they're immunocompromised, different congenital diseases and issues that they have to go in to be seen. In the process, Sully will snuggle up with them on a bed while they're getting an IV transfusion or begin the medication. He just brings a lot of joy to a lot of people there.
0: So beautiful. Everyone wants a doctor and a lawyer in their family, and you'll have both because you and your husband, Ian, are both at Georgetown University. You're getting your prerequisites to get to medical school, and Ian's in law school, right? That's right. How's it going?
1: It's going good. This fall will be my last semester of doing prerequisite courses before I can apply to med school. And Georgetown has a wonderful post baccalaureate pre med program where I've had the opportunity to take some wonderful classes. It's been very interesting being 35 years old and taking courses with people who are 18, 19 years old and learning so much from them. Anybody who is concerned about the future of this country just needs to take a step onto the campus of Georgetown and see what these undergraduate students are doing because it's just unbelievable. They are so smart, so talented. And he ends over at the Law Center and he's in his last year of law school. He just had an internship this summer and is doing really well and, and loving it every day and very excited about working in law in the future. So it's an exciting time. And honestly, we couldn't have planned it out better to be able to take classes during COVID. We really lucked out.
0: Yeah. Truly. And that you both ended up in the same place is wonderful. Yeah. Well, Evan, I can't thank you enough for being on Health Gig. I hope you know how grateful I am, our family is to you, and you enhanced our dad's life more than you can even know. We just will never forget it, and we love you, and we thank you.
1: Well, thanks so much, and love and miss you all so much. All that time we got to spend together in Maine and in Houston, and both Ian and I